1: Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Anderson Blanton's Hidden the Prayer Bones illuminates how prayer, faith, and healing are intertwined with technologies of sound reproduction and material culture in the charismatic Christian worship of Southern Appalachia. Drawing on two years of fieldwork in church congregations and small independent radio studios, Hidden the Prayer Bones explores radio prayers, curative faith clocks, and the poetics of breath and laughter in broadcast sermons. It's an attempt to hear and feel the Holy Ghost in sonic and material space, bodily techniques, and media technology. I'm pleased to welcome Andy Blanton to NBIR to discuss further. Hello and welcome.
0: Hey, Hilary. It's good to be here.
1: So we're going to start off with a general kind of question to get us rolling. What drew you to the study of materiality and religion, And how did you decide to uh, pursue this field site in Appalachia in particular?
0: That's a great question, Hillary. Uh, When I was uh, a boy growing up in North Carolina, my father had a big, grundig German radio that he brought back from his time when he was serving in the Army in Europe. It was one of those big radios where, you know, it had the almost lava lamp-like lights where you could hit these big, ivory keys, plastic ivory-looking keys, and as the tubes in the radio would heat up, I mean, this thing was about the size of a, you know, a a trunk or a chest. And as the radio heated up and the tubes heated up, this green light would start glowing. And I remember as a boy listening to these charismatic uh, sermons the kind of chanted uh, and enthusiastic worship services over the, the AM and FM dial when I was little. Uh, and I've I've always been fascinated with this. Um, and as a graduate student interested in religion and media and the kind of material turn in the humanities and social sciences and, and also the kind of uh, burgeoning literature in the anthropology of religion, this I thought was a really... Uh, was a really exciting and important project to pursue as a graduate student. So it kind of brought in uh, elements from my upbringing in the American South, but also certain uh, theoretical uh, formations in religious studies and anthropology at the time of my uh, graduate studies.
1: And at the time now, too. I mean, all this stuff is really (laughs) current and being discussed, and and I want to get into that in a moment, but... First, maybe we could pull back and just describe for listeners who might not be as familiar with this area, as well as the kind of Christianity you're describing. What is Pentecostalism, and what kinds of churches and ministries are we talking about in the region you, where you worked?
0: The majority of the congregations I work with for the hitting the prayer bones were uh, charismatic Christian, uh, Pentecostal, and holiness congregations. Uh, in Virginia, West Virginia and North Carolina and These congregations stem from a religious movement Called the holiness tradition and also a little bit later uh, Pentecostalism, which was emerging in the early 1900s uh, A brand of Christianity that was Really focused on a kind of infilling Of the power of the Holy Ghost, a kind of filling of the subject with the capacity to speak in unknown tongues or totally foreign tongues, the capacity to uh, to heal, a kind of very enthusiastic religious experience, which stressed the personal, individual experience, the individual kind of sensation of uh, spiritual power would be one, one kind of basic way to characterize some of these movements.
1: So the churches and ministries that you were working in are these affiliated with larger institutional structures? Are these independent? Mm-hmm. Um, are they small, big? I mean, what are the places where you were?
0: The mo- Most of the radio stations and the congregations were, were what they call independent. So although they're certainly drawing with uh, a long history of more established churches, they don't claim any official allegiance to, say, the assemblies of God, which is one of the larger Pentecostal denominations, they're independent and they claim if the if the Holy Ghost is there, then then they want to participate. So there's almost a kind of uh, really self conscious distrust of uh, certain denominational uh, orientations or organizations, and they're they're much more preoccupied with what they're they're calling the kind of uh, immediate infilling of the Holy Ghost in the worship service. So for, for by and large, the congregations I was working with in the live studio of the radio station and also in these small churches were, were what we're calling independent. So the Independent Holiness Churches or Independent Bible Church of God. So there's loose historical affiliations, but then on the ground they they want to kind of distance themselves from from certain institutional affiliations throughout you give us this
1: really wonderful sense of the the language and as much as possible in a written work what it actually sounds like in these radio broadcasts and one couple you worked with closely was brother Aldi and sister dorothy allen from the memorial sorry the jackson memorial hour broadcast mm-hmm. you have you have a lot of of their broadcasts, their sermons, their words. Can you tell us a bit about them and how did that relationship develop?
0: Yeah, uh, Brother and Sister Alan, I I dedicated the book to them because they they learned me on the bread. (laughs) And that's a a colloquial colloquial phrase uh, in the American South, to be learned on something means to be educated on it. Um, I I really owe them a lot to the study because they – they offered me all kinds of recordings. They, they brought me into the radio station. They introduced me to their friends. Um, so the, the ethnography really subsists upon all of their, both their rich poetic capacities within the church, but also that they were my liaisons into this broader community. Sister Dorothy's father was preaching on the radio uh, since the the early 60s. He had a program called the Little Mountain Preacher. So, uh, you know, they were already in a very long history of charismatic and Pentecostal preaching mediated over the radio. And so the the first time I, I saw them, I had, I think I was in the mountains of Virginia. I was driving around in this old rusted out, Toyota truck, it was so rusted that the, the bumpers on the back were about to fall off. And I went, I would go up on the weekends to sort of a high vantage points so I could pick this stuff up in my truck radio. And, and sure enough, I heard brother and sister Alan uh, in the Jackson Memorial Hour, I heard this broadcast being transmitted from Richlands, Virginia. Um, it was incredibly, uh, the sort of the poetics of it, the rhythmic chanting, the communal prayer. It was really intriguing to me. And I ended up, uh, calling the radio station and getting in contact with them. And then several weeks, weeks later, I went to the station and, and, and met them. And that really was the uh, sort of uh, the initiation of a, of a five-year relationship where I was uh, learning about charismatic preaching and going to baptisms uh, in the river and going to local church revivals and also spending a lot of time uh, in the radio station. So the the Allens had been uh, really instrumental uh, in hitting the prayer bones.
1: Her, right, Sister Dorothy's father was, was it George Jackson? Exactly, George. So I'm guessing the Jackson Memorial Hour is named after him.
0: It, it was it was named after him i i believe he passed away probably maybe 15 or 20 years ago uh now um but he was really the inspiration for both dorothy and brother allen actually brother aldi was converted listening to his preaching and so he learned much of his kind of uh poetic and rhetorical style was was uh mimicking Brother George Jackson, and then, of course, uh, always leaving room for the, the power and, and poetic inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But it was very interesting to see the kind of uh, this history and this genealogy of these certain charismatic preachers coming out of uh George Jackson's uh, memorial, hit, hit George Jackson's Little Mountain Preacher radio broadcast, which I might add, and I'm always... Like to emphasize that he, he himself was incredibly influenced by these much more mass-mediated moments of of, of Pentecostalism, such as hearing Oral Roberts um, preach over the radio. So it's uh, although it has its specificities in the kind of preaching and poetic styles of of the American South and Southern Appalachia, I'm always uh, interested in the ways in which these poetic forms are being enlivened and sustained by much broader kind of national and international Pentecostal movements. I definitely
1: want to bring up Oral Roberts again. I mean, he's such an important character in this book. He comes up Mm -hmm. multiple times. But before that happens, I'm curious what Brother Aldi and Sister Dorothy responded. You call the radio station. You say... I want to meet with you. I'm going to write a PhD dissertation about uh-huh. you. What was their response? Did they immediately know what you were talking about and were they excited about it or were they a little wary about what all this meant?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, Hillary. it's such an interesting question about doing fieldwork within the charismatic community. And I think many scholars interested in, in sort of charismatic or fieldwork in Christian communities always come up against this but for me uh, even though I would always you know do my ethical obligation to say you know this is this is what I'm doing these are my intentions within the charismatic form it was always interpreted among the preachers in the congregation that I was sent there for a reason and not merely for you know for for anthropological analysis but that I was there, Uh, there was a certain calling for me. And so immediately when you enter these communities, you're already sort of being uh, uh, interpreted, your place is being interpreted in certain ways that are inextricably related to a charismatic worldview. So although I was always, I mean, I even had to get Brother Allen to sign something for the purposes of informed consent, (laughs) Um, doing research as a graduate student. But uh for them, it, it always seemed like I was there, you know, for, for a reason. Like I had been brought to that station um under powers that were not my own, and I'm not talking about the Institutional Review Board or uh, my obligation as a graduate student. So it's uh, always a very interesting moment between – informed consent, and then being caught up in a kind of charismatic world, which is uh, interpreting you in, in ways that you would never anticipate or could never control.
1: That's really interesting. I'd never really thought of about, about it that way before. But um, in some of my work, I've had the same thing working actually with charismatic churches. On one occasion, I remember being really sort of taken aback when i approached the pastor these are messianic jewish congregations but they're charismatic and i approached the pastor and i sort of explained the whole thing and he just looked at me really calmly and he said i knew you were coming yeah. <laughs> you know god god sent you and i i already knew that this was going to happen so yeah. of, so of course you can do work here in fact in fact you've been brought here as you said yeah. right as you just said for a reason um and i and i remember it really threw me off like i i thought that i was I was bringing to him this information about this project I wanted to do with all of these forms to be signed, right? <laughs> Little did you know. That Little you, did I know, that's right, that all of this had already been both mapped out and prophesied beforehand.
0: No, it's that beautiful moment of of field work, um, which so many people in anthropology and religious studies are immersed in. But the minute that, you know, it's all great when you you come with your forms and your, institutional review board protocols, but when when the power of the spirit then it, it calls you out, it sort of interpolates you in a very particular way and it throws everything, I think beautifully off kilter in that moment. And of course we have ethical obligations and 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 there's there's a real commitment in there to the people with whom we work. but I think it's a beautiful moment where the production of knowledge, really gets, uh, you know, entangled like, you know, the super imposition of hands in a a prayer (laughs) ritual or something. And I love that. I think there's a lot to be, uh, a lot that's revealed in that moment.
1: So what about revealing for us what actually happens on the Jackson Memorial Hour? What happens between 11 a.m. and 12 p.m.? On Is it WGTH 105.5 FM?
0: Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> yeah. the sheep. Yeah, the sheep. They have uh, AM and FM broadcast. And for our listeners, it's also possible now to hear um, Brother and Sister Alan and many of the preachers, um, both male and female, whom I write about uh, and hitting the prayer bones. You can hear them streaming live. Uh, on the internet now. And so it's a really rich space to hear these kind of uh, poetic forms and these different performances of charismatic prayer. So you, could, you can, you know, it, it's Southern Appalachia, but it's also high tech, you know. Um, <laughs>
1: so what is a typical prayer hour or broadcast hour look like?
0: So uh, the typical hour, it usually comes on with music. So as soon as that you know, pale incandescent bulb in the porcelain housing in a very kind of uh, rustic live studio. The minute that comes on, the the members of the Jackson Memorial Hour, they're already playing guitar and singing a song. However, however many congregation members are there, at least five or six people are singing. There's a guitar playing and whoever else has shown up in this kind of uh, improvisatory studio space to play so um, w- right when they come on air, there's music playing. And so after several minutes of music, they they will welcome the listening audience out in, out in this kind of nebulous radio land. They welcome them to the Jackson Memorial Hour. And then they begin to usually read the announcements, what's happening in the local community, baptisms, revivals. And then they read what they call the prayer request. So people within within the local churches and within the, the, the studio itself, have different kinds of needs which they will articulate to the listening audience in order to pray. So uh, already, you know, prayer and divine communication becomes interestingly wrapped up with these uh, modern telecommunications media. So after the, after the kind of prayer request, they'll, they'll usually go into another song. And the liturgical form will then uh, usually move into uh, maybe a testimony or two where members of the in-studio congregation will talk about the ways in which the Spirit has moved in their life in that week or certain prayers that have been answered, uh, certain ways in which uh, the everyday immediacies of their life have been changed or organized somehow by the Holy Ghost. And then we get into the preaching. Uh, but then, uh, one thing I stress and hit in the prayer bones is the way in which this liturgical structure uh, can often be interrupted by a certain uh, spontaneous or improvised moment where someone feels really compelled to intervene on the normal structure, or someone begins to be really possessed and infilled by the Holy Ghost and begins to speak in tongues, which is a uh, known in, in sort of the academic circles as glossolalia, which is a, a, a being infilled or possessed by the Holy Ghost, which would allow you a certain capacity of language, either a foreign language or a totally unintelligible language, at least for uh, the normal human ear. And so, uh, one thing I like, I explore in the manuscript are the ways in which the we have a liturgical form, but how the liturgical form can be interrupted or punctuated by these kind of uh, improvised moments, uh, which I'm very interested in.
1: Right, because they always have a live studio audience there, so the broadcast hour is not just a broadcast, it is also a church service.
0: Exactly. So there, it, it, it is as if, on the one hand, the listener out in Radioland is eavesdropping onto a, com- onto a service And yet then the service is then tailored and custom-made to the listener, for instance, when they ask the listener to put their hand on the radio or come close to the radio. And um, so there's this interesting uh, tension there in that moment between radio audition as a kind of eavesdropping or uh, impinging on a kind of intimacy, and then broadcasting as specifically organized and oriented around this imagination of this, say, uh, a homebound woman who's listening uh, in her home somewhere in the mountains of Virginia.
1: And another thing that they do on the broadcast are healings, right? Something that you described that I found so interesting were these substitutions, where they'll have one person stand in. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so much of these broadcasts and also charismatic religion a charismatic Christianity more generally can be organized around the healing of physical illness. And again, looking at these broader mass mediated movements, which were happening in the, uh, you know, basically early 1900s onward, much of them were oriented around healing of physical ailments and the casting out of the demons of infirmity. Um, But within the studio congregation there's also there's often well studio congregation and in in the whatever church setting as well they have a practice called standing in and the practice of standing in is a, a substitutionary practice where there's someone in the immediacy of the environment where the prayer will happen say in the studio or in the church where someone comes in as a physical um, supplement to someone displaced from the immediacy of the worship context. So, for instance, someone is having hip surgery uh, out in Radioland and they request prayer. There's someone in the immediacy of the studio congregation that has had hip surgery and they're, they have a limp and they, they've been through all this suffering. So they become the stand-in. And all the, the what they call the prayer warriors – then congregate around this man or woman who's had hip surgery. They lay hands on this person and they begin to pray. And this is a kind of ways in which uh, uh, bodies are substituted in order to communicate a kind of healing efficacy to a distant patient. And so, even though the patient is listening uh, via radio or can't come to the church service, there's a kind of communicative Efficacy in a very physical in a physical way between the stand in in the immediacy of the worship context and then this displaced subject somewhere else. So I was really interested in how uh, these stand ins work because the 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 broader theoretical orientation of the book was around uh, what I was calling the materiality of prayer, uh, the kind of materiality of the spirit, which the different objects and technologies and even bodily techniques that came into the moment of prayer in order to help communicate and focus certain uh, healing power.
1: What are some of the classic ethnographic accounts that inspired your work, but that the book also challenges?
0: Oh, there's so many. There's so many, you know, when I was coming up, I was reading the work of uh, Thomas Churdash, uh, who was, re- was really kind of uh, orienting and incredibly influential in, uh, in the last 20 years in the discipline of anthropology and religious studies, talking about what he was calling the somatic modes of attention. And he was an anthropologist still doing incredible work, thinking about uh, healing within the charismatic Catholic tradition and certain ways in which charismatic healing was really focused and, and helped the patient to focus on certain moments of their own body and the way in which charismatic healing thematized and helped to cultivate certain experience for the patient who needed healing, physical healing, Healing from spirit possession, healing from uh, bad family situations or situations in their life, and I was—I've been very influenced and inspired by Short Ash's notion of the somatic mode of attention, um, among several others. I would—I would also note here certainly Charles hirschkin 's idea of what he's calling the pious sensorium and then Birgit Meyer, who's also very influential on this debate, and her idea of the sensational form. But what I wanted to show in a very kind of visceral and concrete way and Hitting the Prayer Bones was the way in which these these attunements, these organizations of, of, of somatic experience within these charismatic Christian traditions, either Catholic or Protestant, the ways in which these were so intimately linked up, and I would say inexplicably bound up with with certain media technologies and devotional objects. So I was really trying to push these ideas of embodiment and sensation and religious experience, feeling the presence of the Holy Ghost, and the, the, the healing, you know, infilling the body of the patient. I wanted to think about the ways in which this was all wrapped up with certain material objects that were out in the world, or or media technologies such as radio. So I hope, at at a basic level that hitting the prayer bones has contributed to some of these debates in anthropology and religious studies about Short Ash's really pioneering idea of the the somatic modes of attention. For the audience, I should specify that somatic mode of attention – is a way to to help the patient focus on certain experiences of of infilling of the spirit, a kind of moment of possession or a kind of moment of of ecstasy, which is the moment of healing and a moment where the patient has a transformation in the experience of, uh, of illness on all kinds of levels.
1: And your book is bringing into that conversation then also these exterior things these um, things that are being circulated as well as technologies like radio, as you said, which is kind of a nice segue to ask you about something that's really evocative, uh, what you call radio tactility. It's this great phrase and you use it in the context of Oral Roberts, who we mentioned before, what Oral Roberts called the point of contact. What is it, and, and I think that'll help clarify for our listeners also, some of these ideas that you're talking about with tactility, materiality, and somatic mode.
0: Okay, Hilary. The point of contact, yeah. Uh, the point of contact is now uh, within these kind of charismatic Christian and Pentecostal healing circles, it's become a, 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 a globally uh, it has a global resonance now. So you can go all over the world and talk about prayer and the point of contact and uh, within Pentecostal communities and generally people know it in terms of performance in terms of a technique of healing, people know, people are aware of this and, and, and know it's kind of global resonances. So I was, you know, within the space of these uh, charismatic congregations in Appalachia, and I kept hearing people say, and I, I want you, you know, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so out there in Radioland to put your hand on the radio as a point of contact. I kept hearing this uh, as a graduate student, and the, uh, I was intrigued with it, of course, for someone interested in, in media technology, and the more I looked into it, the more I realized that this kind of the specificities of this practice in, in the American South was part of a, a much larger mass-mediated history of Pentecostalism. And so uh, in the late 1940s, a very famous and arguably the most influential faith healer uh in American popular culture named Or Roberts, uh, he began to instruct his listeners. Uh, during the prayer time of his very famous healing waters broadcast in the nineteen late nineteen forties, he would instruct the listeners to put your hand on the radio cabinet as a point of contact in order to uh, facilitate the communication of healing power. I would add that Oral was also uh, very influenced by Amy Simple McPherson, who she really pioneered this, and uh, with her uh, church in in California, uh, uh, her her temple in Los Angeles. But Oral, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years later, really formulated putting your hand on the radio as a kind of centerpiece of his whole Healing Waters broadcast. And for our listening audience, this was so uh, ubiquitous in American culture, popular culture, that by the early 1950s, millions of Americans were simultaneously listening to these radio broadcasts. So this was a really uh, a national phenomenon, and then quickly became taken up in the kind of global Pentecostal movements. But it, it, during the Healing Waters broadcast, the patient was instructed to put their hand on the radio cabinet, which uh, in the early 40s and 50s would have, it's still been a, in many circumstances, a tube radio. So it would have been a very large, almost furniture-looking apparatus that was warm from the tubes that would heat up. Uh, But I was very interested in thinking through this idea of feeling a prayer as you put your hand on the radio loudspeaker and the the different kind of implications it had for our thinking through of mass-mediated rituals in, in the age of uh, say the radio broadcast but the point of contact sort of comes up repeatedly in hitting the prayer bones uh, not only because it's still practiced all over the united states any sunday all over the us people are still asking you to you know you know if you if you have an ailment put your hand on the radio during prayer but that it was really the book is tracing a kind of global emergence of a Pentecostal technique of prayer. Um, and, and so, yeah, much of it is structured around the point of contact, which is interesting because it's neither within the subject. We can't, the point of contact isn't about merely the kind of uh, somatic experience of a person, and it's not just about the resonance of a radio, but the kind of uh, strange and really unanticipated uh, co of the, the subject and the object.
1: So another Oral Roberts innovation that still resonates in charismatic Appalachian churches, and maybe more widely as well, is the prayer cloth. What are those, and how are they dispersed? How do they become more than mere material?
0: So the, the prayer cloth has a long history in Christianity. And in the book of Acts, uh, there's a, a passage where uh, supposedly the Apostle Paul is—he's, he, you know, he's really working hard, trying to—I guess at that point he was making tents, and supposedly he, he was sweating all over. I'm giving you the kind of charismatic <laughs> pastor version—sweating <He's> <laughs> on the, sweating on these. The 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 uh, the Greek term is sudarium, which means sweat cloth. But supposedly, someone took this sweat cloth while the you know the Apostle Paul. I guess he wasn't looking, and they took these this sudarium, the sweat cloth, and uh, began to circulate it in the community. And it had a kind of healing efficacy or force. And so this passage was uh, really literally interpreted by um, many in the these emerging charismatic communities and Pentecostal communities in early 1900 and they began circulating handkerchiefs or small snippets of fabric that had been preyed upon and anointed, often anointed with oil. They began circulating these through exchanges of hand with a person-to-person interactions and also through the postal system in order to uh, facilitate healing at a distance. The same phenomenon we see with the point of contact, but in a certain uh Pre-radio moment, uh, they began circulating these widely. I, I've really tried to emphasize how important these little small snippets snippets of fabric have been for the replication and uh, really expansion of these massive charismatic and Pentecostal communities. So, uh, someone would, you know, let's say someone in Kansas. Uh, in 1920 would, would realize that their niece in New York City needed healing or had a had a, a problem. So someone, the lady and grandma in Kansas would lay hands on a piece of fabric, pray on it, and then send it to the mail. Then it would be circulated in several weeks and end up in New York City. And the patient in New York City, I think I just moved from New York to New York City, the patient in New York City would then uh, take the the cloth and often – rub it on their illness or sleep with it or carry it with them. So it was a real physical and uh, material object, which was facilitating healing, but also the the replication and creation of a charismatic community. Uh, so I've written a lot about this, both the history, say Oral Roberts circulated millions of these things. They're still circulating them. It's all, it's, it's still a very important way in which the charismatic community is replicating itself. But also I would add that if you trace this history out, it became more and more, uh, especially since the late 40s, the prayer cloth and its circulation, this fabric object, became more and more associated with uh, also this gesture of uh, money um, and the the circulation of money. So uh, now with the prosperity gospel and things are the you know the green uh, prosperity handkerchief and this thing becomes more and more uh, wrapped up in these circulations of, of miraculous financial accumulation and money in, in in our contemporary circumstances. So one part of hitting the prayer bones looks at uh, the history and contemporary circulation of these small uh, anointed and sacred pieces of of, of fabric.
1: I kind of love the image, actually, of Oral Roberts's wife, right? <laughs> Who's sitting there? They're cutting up old bed to send mm-hmm. out to listeners in Radioland, and yeah. she's she's telling her army of women, uh, <laughs> cut them two inches by two inches, yeah. and
0: <laughs> yeah, it's such an interesting history that the you know Evelyn Roberts had the Ladies' Missionary Society. They're all sitting there, you know, cutting up old bed sheets. and. On the radio broadcasts and also on the mass circulated Healing Waters magazine, they had to start uh, putting, you know, issuing these instructions to these uh, massive publics to to stop sending to stop sending their own, you know, old handkerchiefs or old bed sheets because you can imagine they were becoming getting inundated with these small pieces of detritus or. <laughs> Or and so they began to streamline this. And in hitting the prayer bones, I was also interested, in the ways in which Evelyn, as you so aptly point out, Evelyn was instructing the, the you know the diligent and pious ladies of the missionary society to begin cutting them in a way so that they fit in a postal envelope. Mm-hmm. So that the, the, the history of the devotional object is then all wrapped up, inextricably related with something like, the sewing machines of the United States Postal, you know, U.S. Postal Service. And so these are ideas I play with and push in order to think about what I'm calling the the materiality of divine communication. But as you say that the, you know, at one point it was a kind of pocket handkerchief which had a, a much larger social history with, with smokeless tobacco and all kinds of things in American culture. But then the ways in which that, devotional object was was manipulated and reformed in order to fit a certain medium of communication just like putting your hand on the radio in order to feel the vibrations of the prayer in a, a, a way that was enabled through what people call the affordances of the radio apparatus
1: and brother aldi and sister dorothy are still circulating these prayer cloths right
0: Yes. So they're still circulating the prayer clause. In fact, I had one that they sent to me when I was in graduate school uh, is, is in the book. But they they uh, circulate still circulate these all throughout their own community and uh, in other congregations with whom I worked in Appalachia. In fact, there were ladies that were cashiers at Walmart. And if they felt compelled by the, the spirit, they would... Uh, Begin talking and testifying to people in the checkout line of the of the you know of Walmart. The checkout ladies would begin distributing prayer calls there, and I I love this moment because all of a sudden these kind of uh, international networks of commodification and labor practices they're all on the ground level being then negotiated by this these ladies from an independent holiness church uh, distributing the prayer clause at Walmart so you can tell the executives to to watch that on their security cameras (laughs) that's
1: fantastic as long as no one goes into the Walmart bedding section and just starts cutting up the bed sheets that's when that's when they send out the security (laughs) or anointing the bed sheets with oil
0: (laughs) we can only hope (laughs)
1: So I really liked, there's this short bit that I liked a lot about the Holy Ghost bumps. This is getting us back to literal techniques of the body. What are they?
0: Yeah, the Holy Ghost chills. Chills, right? Uh,
1: nice. uh, yeah,
0: the chills, the Holy Ghost bumps. Uh, the chill bumps, you know, goose bumps. Uh, I think in Germany, where, where I'm, I'm speaking to you from here, would call it the, the goose flesh, if I'm not mistaken. Freud... You know, Freud and all these kind of classic psychoanalysts always have these ideas about the uncanny, and this moment where you experience a kind of excess where it would then precipitate, you know, the creeps or the goosebumps. But I really was really intrigued by this moment in, in these kind of charismatic forms of testimony because uh, it really troubles the whole distinction between agency, um, subjective experience, certain religious capacities because it is as if the skin itself is registering a presence which the, the subject is not quite aware of. So the, the, the goosebumps on the very dermal surface of the body begin to signal or register a kind of excess which is not fully available to our conscious awareness. And I, I, I love this. I think it's such a provocative concept for thinking about, as we've discussed with Short Action and others, the idea of embodiment, the idea of the of how we can theorize the relationship between the subject and the object, or the moment of an experience of uh, excess. And the Holy Ghost chills or the Holy Ghost bumps seem to be a, a beautiful visceral evocation of the ways in which, as as subjects in the world, we're always being organized and our agency is always displaced out into media technologies of the circulation of objects or, you know, built environments and body techniques. So I wanted to take the Holy Ghost chill bumps and use it as a kind of uh, a, a, a springboard in a sort of critical theory tradition to think about uh, ideas of subjectivity, of perception, of embodiment, and, the, and the ways in which, uh, the kind of historical specificities of, of all of that.
1: Voice is also incredibly important I mean we 've been talking about the body, but uh, you include throughout these interludes of really almost verbatim radio sermons, and you talk about a lot of the, a lot of other vocalizations and inflections as well. Can you tell us about some of the ways that radio preachers use their voices, the rhythmic breath, for example, grunts or laughter
0: i mean that's one of the challenges I think of the the printed medium. Um, I mean, you and I are speaking on the medium of, of voice. And so there's uh, you can't see us. The, the voice has been foregrounded in certain ways, um, on the kind of grain of our voice, the certain poet, poetic inflections, where we're from. All of these things are sort of identified in our voice, whereas the printed word is so... Uh, it really evacuates all of those specificities. So I had a... It was a real challenge... In order to an attempt to translate all of these certain poetic devices, the certain rhythmic devices, the certain uh, pronunciations of a word like par, "par," the power of the Holy Ghost, how to translate that into a printed medium, which is as 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 writers uh, sort of w- we need to do. Although I think increasingly we can have more sound recordings with the new media. Um, so I was. With these sermonic interludes, and also with my interest in the voice, I was trying to think about uh, the ways in which certain media technologies, such as radio, really foreground and allow the auditor to focus in on certain um, performative moments, such as what I'm calling the Holy Ghost grunt. And the, these rhythmic forms, when the preacher in Appalachia is inspired by the power of the Holy Ghost, and they begin to uh, uh, really inflect their delivery of the sermon with a kind of certain rhythmic form of breath. And so if if you will now, I will, without totally being uh, presented by the Holy Ghost, try to uh, mimic this. So the preacher will begin to develop a rhythmic form, which uh, has a certain grunt. So he will say, or he, he, she will say, I'm going to tell you tonight <laughs> what's been going on. <laughs> we got to get it right. <laughs> and so the there's a certain poetic form of breath that begins to develop as the orator becomes more and more wrapped up and uh, in sync with the congregation. And one that uh, begins to develop this kind of grunt. (laughs) It comes right from the belly, a kind of engastromythic speech, uh, which begins to really, uh, if we take the the claims of the practitioners themselves, that there's a, a, a power of possession that begins to take hold of the linguistic faculties, begins to take hold of the lungs and kind of play it like a bellows. And so I wanted to evoke this in my writing and to think about this uh, kind of classic anthropological trope and idea in religious studies about being possessed by the Holy Ghost. And this possession is signaled by this grunt (coughs) and a certain form of breath, both in very rich traditions of African-American Christianity and also rich traditions of uh, charismatic preaching among uh, whites in Appalachia. So, uh, this is a recurrent idea, but also to think about how this grunt is translated through the, the radio loudspeaker or the media which we are, are uh, broadcasting today, which could be a cellular phone or a podcast or even a, a radio broadcast.
1: And grunts, to clarify for our listening audience, isn't just a word that you came up with. That's the local <laughs> terminology to refer to it,
0: Yes, and I I have an anecdote in there where I'm uh, throwing hay or or bailing hay with these Baptist preachers on uh, several haulers over, uh, and they started talking about preachers grunting. And, of course, I was very interested in this. They had a kind of pejorative uh, little inflection on it, talking about the preachers grunting in Appalachia. But after that, and after I spent more years in Appalachia, Preachers call it, uh, the practitioners themselves call it, uh, being grunted in the spirit. So the grunt, although it, it, in, in everyday parlance has a kind of negative connotation. In these moments, the grunt is a kind of sacred, uh, poetic device. The, to being grunted in the spirit is, is, uh, almost the, uh, the, 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 the highest form of uh, consecration. So I, I loved uh, exploring this moment of the grunt, which is uh, being filled with the Holy Ghost uh, and to explore this relationship between techniques of the body and breath and how that related to these other moments of enthusiastic worship. But certainly, as, as you point out, uh the grunt is actually a, a, a sacred term.
1: And now you've also explained something else, which is that anecdote that you tell about being with the Baptist preachers in <laughs> the book. I wasn't sure if you were talking about literal hay. And I was trying to figure
0: out if there was an idiom that I didn't know about <laughs> no, hay. <laughs> no, yeah, no, they were... uh A guy named, uh, they called him Boss Man. He was a local football coach named Kevin Grog. Incredibly generous and let me use his farm uh, in southern West Virginia as my base of operations. And there were some Baptist preachers that he knew that needed help putting up their hay. So they had the tractors out. They were baling the hay and they needed the people to, they say, help throw the hay which is loaded up on the the trucks and then put it in the barn. So I was working with them, and uh, that's where I first heard the term uh, the grunters of, the the grunters of Southern Appalachia. Right.
1: So throw, throwing the hay literally yeah. means tossing hay.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. Good. Well, see. So I I should not start incorporating that as an idiom. For, you
0: know, shooting the breeze, throwing the hay. No, it's good. Yeah, I guess. You see, the whole time, I mean, we were, the whole time we were, as they say, shooting the breeze when we were throwing hay. (laughs) So it, it was, as in classic kind of forms of testimony and narrative in that region of the American South, that the throwing the hay was a space in order to begin telling stories. Uh, and and even for the Baptist ministers to begin testifying. So that's one thing, a, a recurrent idea in the book is the ways in which these performative styles and forms of narration really suffuse everyday life and drive everyday experience.
1: One of the things that you also had access to besides um, all this everyday life and experience was actually a really rich archival trove because the Allens had was it 30 years or something like that worth of recordings that you were able to listen to? Did you find over listening to those recordings that any kinds of differences emerged over those 30 years or were you seeing patterns really be recreated in this current generation of
0: preachers? Yeah, Hillary, that's a a wonderful question. Um, All the audio tapes uh, that the Allens provided me with, as you said, almost 30 years Uh, really helped me to track the kind of development of this chanted style, the grunt, certain techniques and forms of breath, um, certain kinds of sermonic architecture. And I I think the most revealing thing for me was to hear the recordings of Brother George Jackson and his his own grunting uh, and sermonic style, but then to hear how Brother, Brother Oldie, As a young convert began to, uh, and as a young initiate into this form of chanted preaching, began to kind of test the boundaries, began to 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 learn this form, Uh, and in that way, it was incredibly uh, an incredibly rich archive to think about how a young pastor develops over time this poetic capacity. Um, and, and, how his, his breath and a certain technique of breathing in this very, uh, kind of profoundly pious technique of body, how it developed over f- for brother, for brother Allen a 20 year period. Um, and again, this isn't to, to, to sort of, uh, collapse the infilling of the Holy Ghost to a kind of history of techniques, but to say that Techniques itself infuses and enlivens a certain moment of infilling of Holy Ghost power, and i really, I really try to to uh, t- to think about this and explore this uh, in the chapter of hitting the prayer bones called preaching or the the anointed poetics of breath. But but as you say, this thirty year archive really helped me to see. Uh, at least in terms of this, the development of the single pastor, how his technique of breath changed and developed over the years.
1: So as we've said a number of times, the Allens are really central, and you even dedicated the book to them. Have they read it? Have you shared it with them?
0: Yes. You know, Hillary, my first advanced copy um, was sent from the University of North Carolina Press in Chapel Hill. They sent it here to Germany. And I I ended up going back for a conference that I met you, I met you at the conference uh, Duke University. And <laughs> no, no, you're,
1: you're you're telling people too much of the backstory. We have uh, to act like uh, we, we don't know each other. This is a purely professional <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> situation here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, you can okay, you can edit that, but it is. <laughs> <all>. <laughs> so the uh, as soon as I got back to the United States, I sent my first right. advance copy. To the Allens. Um, oh, so and you brought I got, it back with you from Germany back yes. to Duke University. So at, okay. at this point, it's moving like a prayer cloth. <laughs> it has images like a prayer cloth and it's returning to the point of origin, just like the prayer clause I talk about, albeit in a very, in a transformed and different way. I sent the book back and sure enough, I got a handwritten letter, um, from Sister Dorothy. Back to my home address in North Carolina that they were reading it, and that they were they were very happy uh now i mean that that's i mean I need to speak with them more but the, but the, I think there was uh there's always an anxiety among ethnographers, particularly this kind of ethical responsibility that you and I spoke about uh, at the beginning of our conversation, but I always had this anxiety of uh you know, really doing justice um, to, and, and being respectful of my so-called informants, while also having a kind of critical critical capacity. But I got a letter back uh, from Sister Dorothy that they were really uh, very happy and very excited about the book, and I felt like at that moment all the work I had done in my graduate formation. Uh, in anthropology and all my field work, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief. I felt like uh, somehow that hitting the prayer bones was out in the world. And Brother and Sister Alan had, after sending me all of those tapes, all of those years to my, my place in, in in Brooklyn, New York of, all, of everywhere, that, that it kind of it came full circle and just like this, the kind of a prayer cloth, it returned to its origin, albeit in a, a different way, but uh, they, they seem very happy and excited about it.
1: Good to hear. And I'm excited now to try to find them so I can actually hear them online, as you said, since they're streaming the broadcast. So what are you working on now? More uh, more prayer cloths, more radio technology?
0: <laughs> yeah. No, my my new project is is extending this interest in radio and Pentecostalism, and I begin I've begun uh, a new project which is looking at the history of missionary radio, in particular the Far East Broadcasting Company, uh, which was a, a missionary organization that was started after World War II. And ultimately became uh, the most powerful missionary radio station uh, in the world. They currently cover almost the entire surface of the Earth with their with their gospel broadcast. Um, so I, I've been conducting research here in Germany. I've been going to to California to interview missionaries and conduct uh, ethnographic and archival work at the international headquarters. And I've done some field work in the Philippines. Uh, at the international uh, transmitter facilities that are now oriented uh, all over toward China and all of Southeast Asia. Um, but to bring it all home, I was in the archives in California, and I was reading reports uh, of radio listeners who were hearing the missionary broadcast, broadcast out of the Philippines. Um, and sure enough, I found a, a listener report that was sent in to the missionaries, that They're putting their hands on the radio to be healed because one of the missionaries who was using the, the transmitter facilities in the Philippines had been influenced by Or Roberts and I, I imagine was affiliated with the Assemblies of God. So, so this kind of global resonance, which I was gesturing to and hitting the prayer bones, really came home uh, when I went to the Philippines. Uh, so the kind of global project of What I'm calling radio tactility um, and these globally mediated prayers really came home in the most forceful kind of way when I was reading this letter from a a Filipino listener (laughs) in the early 1950s.
1: The point of contact it resounds.
0: Yes, it is still it is still a force, Um, and if you 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 know you Google that, you'll see that it's become a real global technique of of charismatic and Pentecostal healing prayer.
1: I do feel like we should maybe end our discussion today by telling our listeners to lay their hands on their, (laughs) what, their MacBooks, their iPhones. I don't know what they're listening to us on. Listeners, put your hands on something. (laughs) We'll see what that does.
0: Yes, yes. Feel the power. Feel the power.
1: <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Andy. This has been a great conversation. And I really thank you for taking the time from Germany to uh, meet up with us and our Radio Land listeners to tell us more about Hidden the Prayer Bones.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure, Hilary. Thank you so much.